Hi, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian here in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts, two Jews on the news. Big guest on the pod today, Jonathan. It's going to be um, three Jews, isn't it? Three Jews. Exactly. Let's admit it's the way we like that, that we have uh, David Axelrod, only the best for you, uh, who, you know, is not only one of the sharpest political minds uh, in the world, but also a host of two podcasts that we both love. So we're going to talk uh, with him later uh, in the program today. A lot to talk about. It is so much to talk about. I mean, even before we get to, you know, the Obama whisperer himself, just the the date on the calendar that is looming, one year on to the day on March 23rd since Britain went into lockdown. But even more importantly, some may argue it's a big news day for you, Yonid. Indeed. Uh, countdown, four days to Israel's fourth election. Tuesday night, 10 p.m. local. The games begin. That's where our exit poll uh, is uh, published. All Israelis are going to be glued to the screens. That's going to be 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 8 p.m. UK. And I'm mentioning this, Jonathan, because I fully expect you to watch us online. I checked. There is no Arsenal match that night. So you will be able to watch. Uh, I, I would just say that, uh, re- you know, um, Arsenal's been losing like the Israeli left. Can I make an Arsenal joke? Are we at that level of our friendship well, yet? Yeah, but you're, on this one, you're wrong. I mean, <laughs> Arsenal are in great wrong. winning form. I don't know form. anything about it. <laughs> and the Alavai, the Israeli left, should only do as well as Arsenal football <laughs> But I am right in comparing the blue and white party to Liverpool this past year. That is yes, right. that would be. That's okay. a great comparison oh, okay. because the big winner that suddenly falls back in dramatic fashion, although they, and in fact, perfectly in sync because some signs of life just in, in these last <laughs> stages from both, uh, uh, from both unfancied teams. So yeah, I think there's a lot of mileage in this. We could go quite far with this with so, some of so these minor parties. So please don't ask me to do the rugby meets politics no, metaphor. I, that, I that's, I'm stuck in that. That's it. I, I, I won't do that. I'm just trying to think of who would be the sporting equivalent of some of the ultra orthodox parties. That would be that would be quite challenging. But no, look, it's a, it's going to be massive, and I agree. The entire Israeli nation will have their eyes on you, Yonit, as they watch that exit poll. Um, but you how know, do you it's get not... your updates? By the way, that makes me that makes me curious. Or you just wait a few weeks and realize that Netanyahu is still prime minister. Yeah, I mean, we tend to sort of think, oh, my, my approach to these elections is really to go into a winter-style hibernation. <laughs> Wake me up in, a, in in six weeks' time, and I will presume, as I've always said, that the forever Prime Minister will still be Prime Minister. That tends to be how I approach it. But no, I know election night is just obviously a massive broadcast event in any uh, country. Huge for you. We've talked about your endurance skills going through 11 hours on the night. But um, but TV, I mean, it's not just news though, is it? No, I mean, it's a, it's a TV event. I was just thinking about it, that in Israel, what we do is we have like two large chunks of the night of a broadcast election of an election night uh, are dedicated for satire. Our satire program comes in, uh, Eretz Nederet, and they do the skits live uh, meaning just think how talented they have to be to write this and present it live as it happens. And I was just thinking, is there any other country in the world where reality turns into satire as it's happening, right? I mean, can you imagine election night in America, right? NBC cuts from Lester Halt and Savannah Guthrie to, to what? SNL to Saturday Night Live in the middle of an election night broadcast. It's so Israeli. And it's also a little bit, I think it's quintessentially Jewish, right? I mean, you have no control over events, so let's just make fun of it. So our election night is sort of a lot of news, obviously, and also satire embedded into that. I mean, in this country, they did try um, Spitting Image, you know, the show mm-hmm, with the puppets. And they did that, I seem to remember, for one election where they, uh, but it wasn't, you know, live, instant re- reaction in real time. I think the closest is probably the John Stewart Indecision 2000 or Indecision 2008. I think they did, Comedy Central did a did show an election covering night the broadcast election. for the first time, but that was on cable. And it didn't, it, it didn't work with the network election night broadcast. Um, so that is, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know. This is a shout out to our listeners. I don't know of any other example in the world of this, of this happening. Yeah. Um, but as we dive into where we are four years, uh, four years, four days before the Just election, like it's going to feel like four years. Exactly. Because final opinion polls come out tomorrow, Friday night, final surveys. And then the next time uh, we see anything will be on election night, as I said, the exit poll. Tuesday, 10 p.m. Now, what traditionally happens in Israel between Friday and Tuesday is like a hyperlapse, right? You know those videos where the sun rises really fast or the building is built? All these trends that we're seeing in the latest polls 
are like on steroids. So, you know, if COVID accelerated trends and, and compressed a decade into a year, the final furlong of Israeli elections is compressing months into hours. And I gave you this example, I think, a few uh, programs ago where we talked about Lapid. On Friday in the polls, 2013, he was 13 seats. On election day, he was 19. These are exactly the trends that are being uh, accelerated. And so what are, if that is the case, what are the trends that we're seeing just in this, as we get to the edge before the final furlong, what are you seeing, are the, are the, how are the lines on the graph moving? So, so there are two things that I think we should know. One is that it's clear Netanyahu has momentum, right? I mean, the whole campaign has been built around him taking full credit for uh, Israel being the first country vaccinated. Obviously, the Israeli health uh, infrastructure deserves a lot of the credit, but they are not going to the pools, and he is. Um, So this is his line, and obviously it's working rather well. Uh, The person who came coming in to assist him is uh, CEO of Pfizer, Albert Burla, uh, who told me this in an interview last week. Yeah, he will call me three o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and he will ask me what about the variants, what data we have. And I said, Prime Minister, it's uh, (laughs) it's three o'clock. He said, no, 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 don't worry, tell me. Or he would call me to ask about uh, children. I need to vaccinate the schools or to ask about pregnant women. So he convinced me, frankly, that he will be on top of things. Mm -hmm. And I knew that... uh, the Israelis, they have such an experience in managing crisis because of the situation mm-hmm. that they live, surrounded by hostile, basically, nations, to a large degree. I felt that they can do it, and I felt that the leader was really going to guarantee that this will happen. So I have to say, I love, I, I love this clip because the <laughs> idea of... It's, he's picking up Bibi, and he's saying, look, I trusted him with the vaccine, but the th- calling at <laughs> three in the morning <laughs> to ask for advice... I mean, this is, uh, my mother's word for a person like this is a nudge. Now, I know the word nudnik, but I, for me, this is a nudge. Someone who is just nudging and yugging you won't leave you alone. And in a way, on a human level, you think, oh, annoying. But maybe if somebody is going to be in charge of protecting the country, it's quite a good thing. It's, it's quite, it's, you know, let's say nudnik in, in the good sense of the word, right? Uh, but, you know, this has obviously been very, very helpful for Netanyahu's campaign. He used this soundbite over and over. Just to note that for some reason he did not use the soundbite where Burla says in the interview, we will continue to transfer vaccines to Israel no matter who is elected on March 23rd. He he didn't use that soundbite as much. But again, Netanyahu is in the momentum. He's been giving so many interviews that I would not be surprised at this point if I open up the Disney Channel and I see him between Mickey and Donald, you know, sitting there you know, saying, Goofy, I brought vaccines to Israel. The only thing that's botching his campaign is the UAE that basically told him, please don't come here, Prime Minister, uh, and saying rather, you know, even in diplomatic speak, that was pretty harsh, saying we're not interfering in Israeli elections, i.e., We do not want to be the backdrop of your campaign. So that is on the one end. The other side of the aisle is Yair Lapid. Let's call him the reluctant challenger of Netanyahu. We talked about this, spent his whole campaign, basically basement strategy, right? Saying, I'm not going to say I'm contending. I'm I'm, I'm going to be prime minister. I'm going to let Netanyahu... Uh, try and drag me out. I'm not going to be dragged. My His own strategy was to say, we're going to quietly construct this coalition with Bennett and with Saar and with Lieberman, and we'll bring this forth after the elections. The closest thing he came to saying anything like, I want to be prime minister, is what he said to the Jerusalem Post earlier this week. I think it's time for a generational change shift in Israel. I think, um, as I was saying, I'm ready. The party's ready. We have we have the right plans. We have the right abilities. We have the right experience by now. Mm-hmm. It's been almost 10 years since I uh, I, I went into politics. We I served in in all different uh, uh, positions uh, that prepares you uh, to the moment. So so. Yes, if I will have the chance, of course, I will be more than honored to serve my country this way. Essentially, the problem with Lapid's strategy at this point is that you you have to appear to be fighting for something, right? I mean, if you're just sitting there saying, no, no, I want a sane government, but I'm not necessarily want to be the head of government, that could be a problem when you're leading up to, to the election. So these are the two trends that we're seeing right now. So my forever PM instinct is not far off on the basis of what you've said. It's interesting for Lapid. I don't know what else he could have done, really, because if you are saying don't vote for Netanyahu, at some point you have to say, you know, I'm ready to do the job. On the other hand, 
if you felt it was a good strategy, the basement strategy, you know, two weeks ago, then surely it's good strategy now. You do always want to see it through, especially as for the reasons you said, Israeli elections tend to have this phenomenon of late deciding, consolidation, these trends at the end. And so you've now, you know, if you believe that was the right strategy, if you're Yael Abid, have you blown it at the last minute by changing course? And yet, as I say, I don't see what else he could do. Um, Partly, you know, cornered there by Bibi. But you do wonder if now in these last three or four days, He's he, the, what Lapid has done is given the cue to Netanyahu to say, see, it's him or me. It's all about the deficiencies of him. Lapid is a deranged leftist. That's usually his line. And, uh, you know, the, you'd much rather me, the nudnik and nudge you know, <laughs> rather than the nudnik and nudge you don't yet know. And so, yeah, you know, it's I think good, it has That's a good election of, slogan, Jonathan. Yeah, the, 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 see, Better the, the, the nudge you know. This is what it would be like if I was running for office. The, the, the nudge you know. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's uh, very hard to see how these other few these last few days could spring a big surprise given the trend lines you've set out. Yeah, look, it is Netanyahu's game to lose, right? And if I can share, I, I want to call it a trade secret, so you'll think it's more interesting. But just my notes to what to watch on election night. You're looking for that 61. You want to see. You know that BB's. Block is rock solid. You know uh, that even now in the polls, if you add Likud and the ultra-Orthodox parties and the extreme right party all together, it's about 48 or 51. You're going to need, he's going to need Naftali Bennett, right? In Hebrew, we have a saying, Hagrush Lira, right? You need the penny to complete the dollar. Uh, you have to see that the math ha- adds up, that, that uh, Naftali Bennett has enough uh, to bring Netanyahu to the threshold of 61. If you have that, uh, and again, remember that Naftali Bennett, we're talking about trends, always tends to shrink as we head to the finish line. It's usually because of Netanyahu. And uh, so you're going to look for that 61. If you have that uh, on election night, you know that Netanyahu has a government. The rest is, you know, but but again, you're going to see the indications of it being the other option, which is a lockdown in fifth elections. If, for example, you see the uh, Arab party, the United Arab List, Ram that broke away from the joint Arab list. I'm sorry that this sounds like a Monty Python skit. Uh, if they pass the th- threshold, you know that the chances for fifth election, for example, are much more, uh, are higher. Are you confused yet, Jonathan? No, yeah, I am. But, you know, the, it's a very healthy, this guide to the perplexed for how to watch the <laughs> election. I mean, US news organizations gave good advice. It turned out to be really prescient advice, which I think is parallel here. In the, in the American election, they said, look, beware of a red mirage on the night. In other words, Republicans appearing to be far ahead on the in-person vote. And then there will be a blue drift as votes shift away to the Democrats because of mail-in voting. And that was very good advice. And I just wonder if in a way there could be a sort of anti-BB mirage on the night where it looks better for the uh, anti-Netanyahu parties. And I say this partly because often that's how it's been. And Mm -hmm. then as the days go by and as extra votes come in, often I know the votes from the the army, soldiers, etc. But just as votes shake out and those thresholds, you know, every last grush is counted, as it were, does it then go to, you know, shift away from that anti-BB block? So the point, I suppose, is much as we all love election nights, the sheer drama of them, uh, the... The you know the, the, the you, there is a health warning to be applied. Mm-hmm. What happens in those first few hours, especially the initial exit polls, doesn't always pan out in the subsequent hours and particularly subsequent days. Agreed. A lot can happen uh, on election night and after. Last election was actually an exception because we started out the exit polls of 10 p.m. said Netanyahu had a 60 had a block of 60. And that was pretty obvious. The music of the whole, the tone of the whole program after that was Netanyahu was going to get a government and and that's where we are. But only a day or two after we realized that he actually had 58 in his block and that changed the whole, and he didn't have a government. So again, I would say, yes, uh, take it with a grain of salt. Whatever happens the first hours on election night, not necessarily what will happen, what what the true results are, especially now we have so many people in quarantine voting uh, and, and their votes will, ca- will be counted a little later. So yeah, it's going to take a while. And nobody knows that better about what happens after election night can change than our guest, David Axelrod, because in American politics, they know it ain't over on election night. It can take days, weeks and months. And that is our cue to turn to David Axelrod. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's such an honor and a pleasure. Fun to be with you. Thanks for having me. 
Um, there's so many titles in your bio, so I'll just go through a few. Director of the University of Chicago yes, Institute. I'm old, is what you're saying. I, I, I know. You're no, I said here, you have an impressive it? career. It's not at all the same thing. <laughs> um, Go ahead. But I didn't mention, mention the Institute of Politics in the University of Chicago and senior politic, uh, political commentator on CNN, and of course, former senior advisor to President Obama and host of two of my, <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I can say our, Jonathan, favorite podcasts, The Axe Files and Hacks on Tap. I'm going to go, David, with with one of your earlier titles, which Johnny didn't mention, because long before all of that and the stellar career and political consultancy and Obama, you were just like us. I'm not saying you were a third Jew on the news, but you were a journalist, (laughs) a political columnist. You did what I do for a living on the Chicago Tribune. So you are unlike me and your needs, because we've stayed with journalism our whole careers, watching on the sidelines, observing political operatives and candidates. And you were doing that. You then went in to politics. And now you're like us now. You're a podcaster. You're an observer of the political game. And I just want to know, as somebody who really hasn't dared do that, what it's like to make the move from from journalism into politics and especially back again. Yeah, I, I was listening to your account, and I was thinking, man, I'm confused. I can't decide <laughs> what I want to be. But I, 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 I was a journalist for the first 10 years of my career, and I really grew up in the newsroom of the Chicago Tribune, and I loved it. And I was interested, Jonathan, and some guy came up to me when I made the move, another, uh, uh, an operative at, uh, at City Hall in Chicago, and he told me that... Uh, about another guy who had made the switch. And the guy said to him, you know, I just got tired of asking people uh, questions that I knew the answer to. And I figured I'd rather be inside the room, you know. And uh, so all of that was at play. And it was a great, it was a great decision. And it gave me incredible perspective. And I that was required. But I'm happy to be back on this side now. And <laughs> Sitting with the likes of you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I listen to you, David, and, and there's, you know, if I, would say, if I were saying this in Hebrew, I'd say you're the architect of the Barack Obama phenomenon. You know, excuse me for my bluntness. And I remember this. Uh, it's in his book, uh, in President Obama's book, uh, Promise Land, I think you're mentioned so many times, second only to Michelle Obama. There's that beautiful story of you seat, sitting in a cafe. Thank God I was second. <laughs> yeah, that could have been could that could weird, awkward. Really awkward. Um, yeah. But you're sitting in a cafe and he comes to you and, and you say to him something along, I, I think the lines was something like, uh, maybe you should run for mayor of Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. And just that... I wonder if in the world we live in, when everything's so polarized here in this country, in Israel, of course, in the United States, is there an option for a Barack Obama story to to happen again? For someone to come, like you're quoted there, saying, shot out of a cannon, coming out of nowhere into national politics and and sweeping the nation and breaking that deadlock. Is there an option of that in in the world we live in? You need, I can't, um, I can't surrender that idea. I can't surrender that possibility. I, I think that, you know, in democracies, ultimately, the market will determine. And uh, it could be that, and I'm hoping, that people become so um, concerned about the level of polarity and so disgusted by it that the prospect of, uh, of being more of a community again, an American community, an Israeli community, um, you know, that those things will have enough appeal to enough people that someone could come along uh, and do that. But, you know, it's been, there's no doubt it's been a sobering decade, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. We came with such uh, high hopes of uh, being able to change the tenor of politics in Washington, and, and Washington was deeply resistant. And, um, you know, uh, obviously Trump was a very, very extreme reaction to all of that. Uh, Now everybody, you know, each side has its own. I mean, there is fact, there is truth. Uh, What I find on the conservative right is there is an alternative set of facts. And uh, people, you know, deeply believe them. And uh, that is, uh, that's a very hard uh, thing to penetrate. So the short answer to your question, which, and that horse has left the barn, the short answer, but is that, yes, I still hold out hope that it's, that, that such leadership is possible. 
and I'm hoping that the market will demand it, but I recognize that there are a lot of forces pushing against it. I mean, it does make you wonder now if the same person, the same skill set, Barack Obama, David Axelrod at his side, put together the same campaign, whether now, because of the landscape we're in with, as you were saying, the fragmented, segmented social media, TV, whether an Obama phenomenon could happen in this particular climate, even with you know everything else being equal, you just couldn't do that. You couldn't be this big single breakthrough because because of what you've just described, that kind of polarization. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a good question, and I often think about it. You know, in sports, you say, "Well, what if Muhammad Ali had fought Joe Lewis? What would have happened?" What right. if it, you know, you can't. You know, it'd be interesting to know what a matchup between uh, Obama and Trump would have been. Like, but you know, one of the things that happened is that um, I mean, the, there is a reactionary movement in this country that's being propelled by opportunists in the media and politics against uh, cultural uh, and economic change that is coming very rapidly, and Obama and demographic change, and Obama, you know, in some ways reflected that change and became a target. Uh, for those opportunists. There is a, an element of cultural elitism that uh, Democrats have projected that has made it easier for the opportunists to scoop up these people and say, you see, they disdain you. They disdain you. You belong over here with us in our tribe. That is what has to be broken. And I will say, one of the skills of Obama, one of the great talents is that he could walk into any room and feel comfortable. I think Biden got elected in part because he had the ability to tra transcend some of those lines. He didn't send those cultural signals. When you're talking about Biden, I mean, he got, the message was 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 very clear throughout, right? It says return to normalcy, return to sanity, maybe even return to boredom, right? It was like, well, this I, is going to know, be, I, I, I add one boring. more, you know, which is return to decency. Right. Uh, but, but what we're, not but, I mean, and we're seeing now something that is transformational, right? You see the stimulus, you see this taking on Russia. It is, I mean, it's dramatic. And for, from someone who, for someone who saw it from the inside, this is, is this a decision to be, you know, to be very, very strong at the beginning, use every cannon you have when, after winning the election, just going very, very strong? I mean, that, that is the, the logic of this decision? Yes. I mean, I think that the history will s tell you that, uh, you know, president is never as strong as in the first two years. It could be harder for Democrats to hang on to one or both houses of Congress. Uh, and so, you know, he knows his popularity is probably at its at a zenith and his power is at a zenith now. And he needs to accomplish as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And of course, the virus uh, and the economic dislocation the virus has caused uh, creates a sense of urgency. And he is uh, responding to it and taking advantage of it. Let's just talk about this thing about being in the room, which you said you wanted to be. And in a way, part of the for journalists, we always feel our faces are pressed up against the glass and we don't. <laughs> so just take us into one moment, for example. It's just happened in the last 24 hours, this thing of Joe Biden saying in an interview that Vladimir Putin is a killer. And the, you know, the Moscow's reacted very strongly to that. Yonit was referring to that. The, something like that, a moment like that when it happens. He wasn't wrong, by the way, but right. yes. I mean, but the, the thing that I think journalists are interested in is the extent to which something like that is deliberate and intended. You know, does president you've been in those rooms do you before the interview say why not use this opportunity to go hard after putin or is it that the question comes the candidate the principal in this case the president just responds what they think and then you guys people like you afterwards deal with how to manage it yeah. how, that, that's well, always well, a question for people like us. let me let me say a few things about that i saw the interview and you know george stephanopoulos who's an excellent interviewer a and positive used to be in the, the White question. House himself. <laughs> he asked him, exactly, a veteran of the White House in, in the Clinton years, asked him, the do you think he's a killer? Um, it wasn't that, uh, it, you know, Biden didn't volunteer it, but he, he answered honestly to it. And I'll say this, having worked with uh, the president when he was vice president, um, everyone's strength is their weakness. He is, he's honest. And he's he's blunt and he's straightforward and he tends to answer these questions uh, directly. I think that's authenticity is one of the reasons he got elected president. But it gives you know I think it 
it, it often can give heartburn to the people who work for you uh, if you're that kind of a a, a, a politician. And um, I, I don't think he went into that interview with the, the mind toward calling uh, Putin a killer. That word was offered to him and he acknowledged it. I think he probably did go in with a mindset toward saying we're going to be tough with Russia. And what happens in the room afterward, I mean, I don't know. I haven't talked to them. I don't know whether how they, but you know, there's a, you slap your forehead every once in a while when you, you know, and there are times and not specific to any candidate or, or office holder when you just feel like saying, man, get out of that chair and let me answer that question. <laughs> you know, that's not the way we were supposed to answer that question. I've got to ask you just about what the thing that's on our mind with the elections coming up in Israel, which is, hmm. you know, I was a correspondent in Washington a lifetime ago in the middle 1990s. All, yes. I covered Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole, for God's sake, right? And Bill Clinton <laughs> versus George Bush's father. None of the people from those contests are still around. But one person who was winning elections then is apparently winning elections now. And the person I'm talking about is Bibi Netanyahu, right? Yeah. Elected first in 1996 and, according to the polls, a front runner at least in 2020, he lost a couple of times in the middle, Jonathan. He but did, besides, but, it's a, it, I mean, <laughs> but I ever since your, 2009, yeah, about uh, yeah, 20 days after Barack Obama was inaugurated, he he's winning. He, okay, so yeah. your professional <laughs> assessment, David, as somebody who assesses political horseflesh, to use that Americanism, of all the candidates and politicians you've seen, just where on that scale do you put? And I'm not asking for a judgment on his the rights and wrongs, the morals of his politics, just as a player of the I, game, how good is Bibi Netanyahu? I feel like this is almost a rhetorical question. I, obviously, <laughs> his durability uh, speaks to that answer. I mean, and this is a value-free judgment because the way he stayed there, I think, raises a whole bunch of questions. And, you know, in some ways, he and, and Trump were kindred spirits because he, you know, Bibi understands how to uh, harness uh, the passions of people, the prejudices of people, the fears of people uh, to his own benefit. And he's always been good at that from the very beginning. Um, you know, I, I have to tell you, the first time I met him was in 1994 and I was on an APAC trip. And we met with, it was it was obviously before uh, the assassination of, 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 of Rabin. And we met with him and we met with Shimon Perez and we met with Rabin in a row. And the same person in the room asked the same question, which was, Oslo was going on. What would happen, you know, how are you going, what are you going to say to the settlers if they have to move as a result of these peace negotiations? And Bibi's answer was very, I tell them they don't have to move because I'm not going to do it. You know, uh, Perez said, I think sincerely, but it came, th when I talk about sending the wrong message, it was, I tell them they're free to stay under Palestinian rule. Uh, and Rabin, who was clearly impatient with having to meet with us in the first place, kind of <laughs> grumbled, I tell them that too much blood has been spilled, we've lost too many of our young, and peace has a price, and this is the price. Uh, and you could, you sort of saw, <laughs> you could see why he was the leader. Yeah. Um, but uh, Bibi plays the emotional elements of politics to his advantage, um, and the cultural wars, uh, as well as any American politician, including Trump. And you know what he has that Trump doesn't is he does have a, a deep grasp of government and all the levers of government. I mean, Trump was disinterested in those. Uh, Bibi uh, understands them at an integral level. So he, those qualities combined has made him the most, you know, one of the most durable political figures in the world. David, are there any fond memories <laughs> from the uh, Netanyahu years and the Obama years that <laughs> well, you remember? One of the interesting ones was there was a published report that uh, that Netanyahu referred to uh, at, at a cabinet meeting, referred to uh, Ram Emanuel, who was the chief of staff, uh, and my friend and uh, uh and myself as uh, self-hating Jews. Uh, and a reporter asked me about that. And I said, he's got it all wrong. I, I love myself. I hate Rom. <laughs> he just uh, got it wrong. But, and, 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 uh, and the prime minister, we, I saw him at uh, the UNGA conference shortly after that report. And he 
it may have been, I think it was at Unga, and he, it was, that that falls uh, at, right before the high holidays, and he right. wished me a ha- happy holidays, and I think said something about that, you know, that, you know, that wasn't so, I, you know, whatever. It gave me, a, it gave me to, it gave me a chance to have a joke at Rom's expense, so I thought it was worthwhile. <laughs> Badge of honor, I would say. Yes. If indeed he is elected, and we don't know that, obviously, if we're looking at a Netanyahu government or a... I don't Denmark. know if everybody, anybody ever gets elected there. I think you just have elections. <laughs> I talk about full service. That, that is a full yeah, service is, industry for strategists. We're just doing the election too. thing forever. That's basically where we're, we're <laughs> yeah. going to try that and see how it works. Um, uh, but, but if he does, how does the aftertaste of the uh, Obama-Netanyahu... Uh, relationship or or dysfunctional relationship? How does that uh, affect the the relationship with with the Biden administration? Well, I mean, uh, in in part, that is going to rest with uh, with Netanyahu and and how he decide. Does he decide to position Biden and the U.S. as a government as hostile um, as he did during the Obama years, mm-hmm. or does he try and position himself as uh, a guy who really understands American politics and is tight with uh, the leaders here, and 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 that redounds to Israel's benefit? You know, I, I I don't know. He he'll have to make a decision on that. And I you know I think it's interesting. The Biden administration has been in the early going. I think, you know, partly because I think there's an election going on, they've been pretty low key. Uh, you know, obviously they're, they're pursuing uh, the potentially the, uh, you know, re-engaging with Iran and so on. And that's, a, that's obviously a, a, a sensitive subject. But by and large, they've been pretty quiet. And we'll see, you know, what happens beyond. I don't think they're going to abandon their view on a two-state uh, solution. I don't think they're going to abandon their view on settlements. Uh, but how they pursue it, we'll, we'll wait and see. So I think that's a TBD mm-hmm. is the honest answer to that. You know, the there are some of your colleagues who've not just observed Israel from a distance, but gone over there and worked there. You know, Stan Greenberg, who polled for Bill Clinton, then polled for Ehud Barak. And uh, we were reading, I don't know if anything came of it, because they then had some other difficulties. But the Lincoln Project, who were offering their services to one of Netanyahu's rivals uh, in Israel. Do you think U.S. Mark Melman, by the way, who's Lapid's strategist, right? Yes, yeah. right. And who's brilliant, I mean, brilliant guy. I know him very well. Yeah. Do, do, does U.S. political expertise travel? Is it an exportable commodity? Do you think? Well, you 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 omitted one big name uh, now Arthur deceased, Arthur Finkelstein, yeah. who was very integral to Netanyahu's and 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 imported, I think, a lot this this notion of. Uh, of mining uh, cultural resentment, uh, you know, racial resentment, and so on. I mean, all, all of that stuff were things that he brought from uh, the U.S. Uh, there, and I think he found a willing and able partner in Netanyahu. Um, you know, the the art of being a an American consultant consulting overseas is the ability to listen very carefully and understand what is different and not just what is the same, you know. I mean, one of the things that I thought was useful to me as a strategist was being a journalist, because when you're a journalist, your job is to parachute in to places you've never been before and it, and not assume that you know all the answers, but have a pretty good sense of the questions you need to ask to get to the answers. And that's what good consultants do. And, you know, I'm sure, look, you, you mentioned, Yoni, you mentioned Melman, mm-hmm. who I've worked with over the years. Um, you know, he's very, very good. And, 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 you know, he's a pollster, so he's used to asking questions. Uh, so, you, you know, I'm sure that he is, he's valuable to, uh, to Lapid. Yeah, I, I guess we'll see. We'll see just how valuable. How valuable. How exactly yeah. have, and I don't want to put it have, all on Mark. Four I mean, days, so. There are other things exactly. at play here. No, but definitely he's the strategist behind the idea to sort of stay in. I call you know kind of a basement strategy, right? Not take uh, Netanyahu on head on, etc. Um, I, I, I want to well, and, and not make Lapid. You know, BB wants to make it a, a, a BB Lapid yep. race and try and uh, collapse some of these smaller progressive parties and. 
uh, I think Lapid is not playing. He's know? not playing, right? But the question is how how well this whole thing will play out. This this we really don't know. Uh, I, I want to ask you something from from an, another direction, uh, David. Right after the Capitol riots, you, you said something that haunted me for a few days. You I think you spoke. I think you said this on Hex on Tap and on CNN. You said that you you're parents fled Eastern Europe. They fled yes. persecution and you never thought you would see as an American these pictures. And yes. we were talking to Jeffrey Goldberg a few weeks ago about how the sense of security of, of Jewish Americans, I think we, we well, we're two Jews on the news who are trying to understand how Jews feel around the world. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel like something has changed in your sense of security uh, in, the, in, in these four years, after four years of Trump? Um, look, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, it's just a fact that hate crimes are up exponentially here and, and, and anti-Semitism is on the rise. And you see these groups. I mean, look at QAnon, which incre- I mean, this insane kind of theory, uh, you know, that includes, you know, Jewish, Jewish lasers from space starting fires in California and so on. Uh, you know, the, we saw the marches in uh, in Char- the marchers in Charlottesville saying Jews won't replace us. Um, you know, and 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 in Nazi regalia, you know, it's un- to say it's unsettling is an understatement. And I, I will tell you, when I even when I was in the White House, which was uh, before Trump, um, I had uh, Secret Service protection because. A guy shot up the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and he had my personal information in his pocket. And so that created a concern. So, you know, I'm aware. I don't I don't I don't think about it moment to moment. But, you know, the my vision of America is where we where whatever our background, our faith and so on, we're knitted together in in one community of of shared sort of civic ideals. Um, that has been riven. And whenever that happens, wherever it happens, um, if you're a Jew, I mean, that's a source of concern uh, because that social fabric is also what pr- pr- uh, protects people, you know, to practice their faith to and their culture and so on. So, um, you know, no, I don't live day to day with it, Yonit. Uh, and, but, but, does it concern me? Yeah, it concerns me. Not for my own safety, but generally for the safety of the community and the coherence of the American community. So David, I didn't know that story about you yourself being, your details being found with the person who shot up the Holocaust Museum. That is very jolting to hear. I mean, what came out of the conversation on similar ground we had with Jeff Goldberg was this idea that relatively late in his life, this was more or less the first time he had ever felt this about America. And certainly Mm -hmm. for those of us outside America, whatever troubles there are, for example, here in Europe for Jews, the place which you've just taken as read as an absolute bedrock stability of democratic norms was always the United States. And that was the, you know, whatever, whatever else was happening, you just thought it would never happen there. So I'm just curious to know whether... The, the Trump period and seeing those democratic norms being trampled on gave you that feeling of uncertainty for the first time or whether you'd had it before, after all, from that own, you know, your own personal experience of being targeted? You know, we've had periods in this, in this, I mean, we've had neo-Nazis and George Lincoln yeah. Rockwell and people like that who, you know, that's part of our history. Um, but it's never been... Um, it's never been affirmed by people in in high places, and certainly not the president of the United States before. And so, yeah, it's it's. Um, I I agree with Jeff that um, this is something new to most of us. Um, you know, we haven't seen this kind of virulence. But virulence. I mean, the thing that upsets me is 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 not the virulence because we've always had this kind of we've had these movements before. It's the acceptance of them, the acceptance of them, you know, as I said, affirmation by the president. I mean, we have two members of QAnon or two uh, adherents to QAnon in the United States Congress now. You know, it would be as if you guys elected Kahanists to the Knesset, 
Oh, wait a second. That could happen, yeah. I guess. <laughs> but anyway. Um, it may just, just may happen. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, it, it, is, it is that, that the, the, the kind of respectability that this is being shrouded in, that somehow this is a valid, that these, these race theories are valid. Uh, that is new, uh, you know, coming from high places, and that is concerning. And, you know, I, uh, I read and now I've watched uh, the TV series that resulted, Philip Roth's book, The Plot Against America. It felt a little like that. That was you exactly know, what I had in mind. It felt a little like that. Yeah, it felt a little like that. And that, that's really unsettling. And I do think of my father who fled uh, from what is now part of Ukraine when he was a boy and all the horrors that he saw and the sense of security that my family felt in finally making it to America uh, and what he might think uh, when he saw these scenes. Or my grand, grandfather who, uh, who came here from uh, Russia on my mother's side uh, for the same reasons. Um, it's, it's very unsettling. We should have one ever so slightly lighter thought, which is it's not only the Israeli elections that are approaching. That wouldn't be hard, would it? It wouldn't be hard. Um, <laughs> the, the festival of Pesach or Passover is looming. Some of us are already planning a Zoom Seder for the second year running. But do you know already, David, where you might be for your Seder this year in 2021? No, I'm trying to figure it out. I was just discussing this with a friend of mine from Chicago who's out here. So need to. Where's out to, here, by the way? We see you as such a Chicagoan. You're not in Chicago. No, right now. no. I'm a virtual Chicagoan. Uh, I am. <laughs> so I'm am in, I, by the way. I grew up there. So uh, I'm a virtual Chicagoan myself. I. Um, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, Lakeshore Drive. Oh, and really? And met Jewish Day School. Ah, yes. Uh, See, two Jews, they have to talk about some, 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 some point or another. Rahm Emanuel was a... He did, yeah, and his kids. His kids, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we digress. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I came, I've been coming, we have a, a place in, in Arizona. I, I love baseball and I love the climate. And in the winter, I try and sneak down here. But it's been a great place to be during this period. It reminds me how lucky I am and many of us are to... Uh, have that ability during during a pandemic. A lot of people here haven't, but um, uh, yeah, I'm down here. But don't tell anybody. So it's next year in Phoenix. Don't worry, your secret is safe you. with us. Okay. <laughs> yeah, next year in Phoenix is good. Yes, David next Axelrod. Year in Phoenix, David. Uh, next year in Chicago, I think, is probably the way I should say. It. The ancient <laughs> prayer. Next year in Chicago. <laughs> uh, from the girl from Tel Aviv has to invite you all to do next year here. Okay. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us. It was pleasure such a, to be such with a pleasure. You guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a very interesting conversation. It really was. I mean, not everybody who was a political operator makes the transition into being a really sage observer of politics. But uh, David Axelrod, in his podcasts and on ours today, has shown he absolutely is is one of that very select group. Indeed. And we would want to make the point after Jeffrey Goldberg and David Axelrod, Jonathan, that our mic is open to non-Jews as well. Um, just saying, if President Biden wants to co come on, you're not going to tell him, sir, I'm sorry, you're an Irish Catholic. You yeah, don't no, have to be Jewish is the title I want to steal from. Oh, of course, yeah, that has a good and long history. <laughs> no, we could have two and uh, two Jews and an honorary Jew on the news if Agreed. President Biden wants to come to us. You remember, we're there on Instagram, President Biden. We are two <laughs> Jews on the news. We know you're busy on that platform. Find us there. Find us wherever you get your podcast, Mr. President. We are here for you. Um, have no fear. You cannot, though, I think, uh, be a recipient of this week's Chutzpah Award, because, Yonit Levy, you already have candidates for that prize. Indeed. Uh, if if I can, Jonathan, I don't Do. know if you'll like it, uh, but it is my, but my nominee for Chutzpah in the week uh, will be the European Union. And I'm talking about the AstraZeneca mess. Um, now, some people... A uh, very small amount developed blood cl uh, clots after taking the AstraZeneca vaccine, and some EU countries immediately suspended the use of it. Now, we have 19 countries not using the vaccine, uh, despite a host of, of scientific and health experts saying that the vaccine is safe and that the benefits uh, of using it outweigh the risks. Now, the EU is furious, saying it's not getting enough vaccines and may even suspend sending to Britain those vaccines produced in the EU 
the same vaccines they say are unsafe. Uh, so really just a tragedy of bad decisions and bureaucracy and not a good time for the European Union. And the sad thing about it is that it's giving this exact problem of bureaucracy and everything that is the, the, the cascading consequences of it are just giving the ammunition to the people who are anti-EU. Yeah, I think it's a worthy recipient of the uh, Chutzpah uh, not, uh, Award for us. It does recall an old joke. I mean, when you have the Brussels officials and individual heads of government in Europe saying, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is flawed, we don't like it, we don't think it's tested enough on over 65s, and we think also there's these risks. And meanwhile, why haven't we got more of it? I mean, the contradiction. Why are there, you underproducing? <laughs> the, the contradiction there does recall that very old but still worthwhile Jewish joke of the two diners at the kosher restaurant lamenting. And one says to the other, the food here is so terrible. And the friend replies, yes, and such small portions. And, and that's this is the, the EU has made that joke um, live again for the 21st century. Because remember, it wasn't j just with these reports of these handful of cases about blood clotting. And by the way, people point out there are just as many cases uh, associated with the Pfizer vaccine, and no one's complaining about that. No, it's the, the people like, for example, Emmanuel Macron were kicking off about this before saying that, you know, they weren't sure that the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca group had done enough trials among older people. So they were against this from the beginning because they hadn't got enough. They hadn't ordered the supplies. And therefore, almost like the old sour grapes thing, they were saying, look, because we can't get it, we don't want it anyway. Uh, and so, you know, there is there's, 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 the chutzpah uh, of the EU on this issue has been noticed by our chutzpah award judges in previous weeks, even before we got to this. But this week it rose to the level where a nomination was really irresistible by the Academy that hands out the chutzpah award. <laughs> where is the Academy? Is it in, in Stockholm and Brussels? It sits where in many it? locations. I um, understand. As, okay. You know, it is, uh, it, it reaches international, as you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but this week they felt there was really no competition. So uh, the, the, the Euro European Union, I'm afraid, I say this as a conviction remainer, uh, and was on the opposite side of the Brexit argument, it has not covered itself in glory when it comes to the vaccine. Yes. Uh, so with that uh, sad sighing, I will move on to the Mensch nominee of the week. Good, um, more cheerful. The people, the good men and women of the Israeli Antiquities Authority responsible for the discovery of the new Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, more than 2,000 years old this week, very similar to the highly regarded Dead Sea Hidden Scrolls that were found in the 40s and the 50s and are in the Israel Museum. And now a new rare find, Greek translations of uh, the books of Zechariah and Nahum and are written in, uh, 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 by the way, the only the word, the name of God is written in Hebrew in these texts, as you Brits would say, quite an exciting uh, discovery here in the Levant. Uh, what was also um, excavated was a 10,000-year-old perfectly preserved woven basket, the oldest complete basket in the world, way before Amazon. And the thing I'm most excited about, Jonathan, is a 2,000-year-old lice comb which eerily re resembles the same lice comb we use today. And I'm just thinking, I used this week on my son's head, incidentally, and just thinking of that woman, that mother 2,000 years ago, using that lice comb on her son and saying to herself, these lice are never going to go away. And she was right. I just, <laughs> I love that story. I love and, that story. Yeah, no, I love that. There's solidarity and empathy across two millennia. <laughs> um, my children now past that age, but I do remember the we called it the sort of nits comb, although it was a lice comb, but the children mm. would have a little note from the school saying there's nits again or lice <laughs> again. Um, relate If we are handing out Mensch Awards to the recovery of, of long forgotten and long buried texts, your one in the land of Israel is 2,000 years old. My one in diaspora is only 70 or so years old, but it is um, the Mensch recipient uh, is also associated with a recovered text, and that is the novel that I am reading and really gripped by at the moment, published in this country next month, but I got an early copy, is called The Passenger by Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz. And you may be thinking, ah, oh, that's a new up-and-coming novelist uh, who we haven't uh, been reading. And in a way, you'd be right in that uh, he was a new and upcoming, uh, upcoming novelist, 23 years old when he wrote The Passenger in 1938. Uh, he oh. wrote it uh, fresh in the wake of the Kristallnacht uh, pogrom in Germany, or obviously wrote it in 
German. It is uh, a, a sort of gripping read, uh, like a kind of Hitchcockian thriller, the publishers are saying, um, because it is about one man's escape from Nazi Germany, a Jewish man's escape as he realises uh, the net is tightening. Thrilling read, um, and the manuscript was found uh, a couple of years ago, uh, having lain buried, was republished in 2018 across Europe, and it's been getting rave reviews in the countries of continental Europe, comparisons with Franz Kafka in El Pais. It comes out in English after all these years next April. It is called The Passenger, but Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz, a young man who did not live actually beyond 1942, um, killed in a, in a remarkable circumstances. He was deported from Britain, sent to Australia, was on his way back to, from Australia uh, to uh, Britain, and his ship was sunk by a Nazi submarine. It's an amazing story. The book itself is gripping. But uh, like your mensch of the week, my one is the author of a text that had lain apparently forgotten and buried all oh. these years. And so I think there's a nice symmetry between our menches of the week. <laughs> So the book itself is gripping and the story behind it. So from Both. old old manuscripts and antique scrolls as our Mensha nominees, uh, we can uh, scroll down further and say again that we have an Instagram page. Did you see what I did there? I did and Jonathan? I was impressed. There the is, yeah, I just passed from 2,000 years to social media. I, I wanted to impress the lofty columnist guy. Okay, so we have our Instagram page at Two Jews on the News. Can't believe that username was available, uh, but it is. That's uh, because both... Harry and Mori in Florida are not yet, <laughs> they're not yet on Instagram in Boca Raton. And if they were, they would have taken it because, as you know, two Jews on the news, that's you and me, Marvin. Um, but instead, <laughs> yeah, it's you we and me, quick. your need, we we've quick. taken it. Uh, and so it's there. You can also get us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Remember, review. There's only one review option available. We want the five-star rating, but you can also write words and review. Some lovely ones already appearing. Do that. Tell your friends. You can WhatsApp. If you know, Why not write to your friend, your relatives in Florida uh, with a letter, um, uh, a snail mail, and Leo's doing a gesture involving wings. What would that be? What, is, what does that mean? I don't know. He means, I think he means the... Um, oh, carrier pigeon. pigeon. Send it by carrier yes, he, he pigeon. he meant the carrier pigeon. That was Very what he good. was doing, he was doing a pantomime. Our, our brilliant producer was doing a carrier pigeon mime. As a, as a, as a mime artist, he's a very good executive producer. Um, <laughs> I think we are almost reaching the end it, times. Indeed. Let's, so let's say our thank yous to our mime artist and executive producer, Lior Friedman, and Rom Atik, head of podcast, Yair Bashan, for editing, and Irad Eshel for original music. Next week, our special election debrief, and Jonathan will share his secret recipe for matzo ball soup and hopefully his communist Haggadah, as promised. That will be next week. Jonathan, enjoy your week. I won't be sleeping much, but we shall meet. Happy after election, election night, night. Your need. Good, <laughs> good luck to everyone. Good luck to you. Be well. You too.